Hello, Acquired LPs. Today, we have an awesome episode for you with Brian O'Malley from Forerunner Ventures. Brian is someone that David, I think you've known for a long time. Yeah, well, man, I think I first intersected with Brian back when I was an associate at Madrona, and he and Greg Gottesman, my co-founder at PSL, mentor to us both, Brian was back at Battery and um, co-led a seed series a in wavy which ended up getting acquired by google and had a long history brian of course went on to uh be an investor at excel in companies like hotel tonight and anchor which we'll talk about on this episode but we wanted to have brian on for what is the state of consumer investing in 2022 because his current firm forerunner exclusively invests in consumer technology investments they've got a billion dollar fund they're one of the foremost consumer only firms out there and have really built a presence in the space and so i was talking with brian about what what a good episode would be and i realized that we really haven't touched the subject since having sarah tavel on two, three years ago at this point to talk about this same idea. A lifetime ago. Yes. A lot has changed. So talked with Brian about where we are in the cycle of consumer investing and not just the macro cycle, but also the current generation of platforms that enable breakthrough consumer technology companies. He also shares his specific thoughts on where we are in a handful of areas like direct consumer, Web3, the metaverse, uh, the benefits specifically of chasing niche communities online. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R.com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. 
With that, this is not investment advice. Do your own research and on to the interview. Brian O'Malley, welcome to the Acquired LP Show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Is this the Forerunner office? This is. Well, if you can see out back, we're looking out at the Presidio. But yeah, we're back in the office. We're here most of the week and we just feel like we get better work done that way. So I don't know if that's a statement about what our home life is like <laughs> or a statement about how productive we are in the office, but either way, we're happy to be back. Presidio is so beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Crimea River, right? It's it's not a bad place <laughs> to have to go work in a national park. So, Is 100% a forerunner in San Francisco? No. So we've got two people that are based out of New York that were sort of pandemic transplants who were on the team before, and we've gotten a lot of value out of them being local. And then we've hired a few other folks who... One person's in Sacramento, one person's in Toronto, one person's in Southern California. And so we end up just traveling a lot out here to spend time together in person. But it's something that we kind of erred on the side of hiring the best people possible. And then we're trying to find ways to get more FaceTime along the way. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you find yourself in LA a lot being sort of pure consumer investors? Not as much. I mean, I think one thing that the pandemic did to help is just it's made us more productive on Zoom. And so those initial meetings, both from a founder perspective, as well as from an investor perspective, you can get a lot of those done over Zoom. But when you really want to get to know someone, that's when you just get on a plane and go see them or vice versa. And so I would say there's less meetings in person, but the ones that you you are doing in person are the ones where it really matters, where it's not just like an hour and a slide deck. It's like a couple hours and a couple beers. That's more the way I like doing things anyways. So it's been a healthy balance. Like I used to be in New York probably once a month. And now I'm there probably every two to three months, but I stay for a longer period of time and end up spending a lot more face time, both with folks in the portfolio, as well as other people in our ecosystem. And that cadence has just been a lot better for me, both from the fact that I'm like getting on my years and those red eyes aren't as pleasant as they used to be. And also just to really feel like you're there, you're present, you're in the moment, and you're not thinking about, you know, getting through TSA security and your next flight home. Right. Right, which is me every time I'm, you know, hauling into San Francisco for a quick day and a half. So we're talking about consumer investing today. I want to start with a provocative question, which is a lot of venture capitalists have fled from consumer and are basically B2B SaaS investors at this point, maybe some marketplaces. But how do you justify investing in early stage consumer given how high the variance is, how high beta the investments are, given how hits-driven some of this is, how fickle consumers are. I get that the outcomes can be big, but how do you execute that strategy? Sure. So, I mean, venture capital has gotten a lot more competitive in recent years. So if competitors want to vacate the premise, that's okay by us because there's enough people (laughs) we do like to work with that we can find solid partners. But I think a lot of it comes back to folks really focusing on the wrong metrics. They're trying to spend time in-app, looking at the same thing as you would from a B2B SaaS perspective, which is very metrics-oriented. And we try to be more focused on people, what's going on in their lives, what's top of mind. And so I think our first principles as a firm are different. And so some things that might seem vague to another firm, it is maybe just like someone listening to a foreign language. Or it's like, you know, looking at the matrix. And so we're trying to be like Neo and be able to interpret that in a way that we understand. And we do that by not thinking we have the right answers, but by doing a ton of primary research and really trying to understand what's going on in people's lives, what's top of mind. And that's going to help us understand 
what has resilience versus what might be a fad and be gone tomorrow. And that's something that like, I think to do it well, you need to focus on it. Like it can't be the side gig. It needs to be the focus of where not just you as an individual, but as a team, you guys are all collaborating on because it helps get through some of those harder questions. Yep. By what's going on in people's lives, you mean in consumers' lives, sort of writ broadly across the country and across the world, not the founders' lives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you have a lot of venture people chasing founders around, trying to get their time and attention. We want to go one step further and focus on the end consumer because those are the same questions that the best founders are also asking. So if we can be insightful about someone's customer, that enables us to show up and have a conversation with them that's not about what their monthly revenue looks like or who they just hired or who they're going to hire, but like what is going on with their customer? What pain points do they have? And what unique solutions do they have as a team that are different from alternatives that have been there before? And I always think about consumer investing sort of pre-product market fit and post-product market fit as totally different asset classes. Because pre-product market fit, there's so many more companies, so many more theories about something that could work. And post, it's really just, actually, maybe I'll, I'll put it to you about what is it about post that sort of makes something really exciting to you? Yeah, I think pre-market fit, you're really trying to understand if something can be a thing, right? You're trying to understand whether the composition of what the product is, what it's solving. And a lot of times that's that's less about how great the solution is. That's about how bad the existing alternative is today. Like if you think back to Uber, Uber version 1.0 was not an amazing experience in and of itself and probably wouldn't have survived in New York where taxis were already pretty darn good. But when contrasted against the taxi ecosystem that we had here in the Bay Area where you would sit on hold for 30 minutes, and then it was still 50-50 whether the car would actually show up, that product was a lifesaver. And so a lot of it is not just how good these early products are. And a lot of founders spend too much time trying to make those products you know, really special or really clean or have a very high NPS when it's more about how bad is the alternative and how important is it for people to solve that problem. And so that's really the early on is just like, hey, can this be a thing? And then from there, you're really trying to understand the resilience of the product. Can this stay a thing? Can this become more and more important to the people that it's serving? And look at it not from the standpoint of, hey, every customer you ever had is going to stick, but the ones that do, they're going to use this product three, four, five times as much, and it's going to become part of their daily habits. Right. So if I could paraphrase, the pre-product market fit is really about, is an entrepreneur on to something where the current state of things is really just not serving customers well. And then afterwards, it's about how durable is the sort of like heat and love around the solution that they've discovered. Yeah, exactly. The The average consumer downloads zero new apps a month, right? People don't wake up in the morning thinking about your startup. Like that's just the unfortunate reality. But they think about what's going on in their lives and they need to find the initiative to look for a solution or they need to find the initiative to talk about the problem with someone else that's in their life, and maybe they've intersected the solution. And so it's more about rising above the noise. When you think about just how many startups there are, how many new companies are out there, a lot of them have a really hard time rising above the noise because they're not intersecting a narrow enough set of people where you're important enough. And this is one of the big issues I think a lot of venture people have 
is they try to solve for these large market sizes. And usually in the early days, it's about a smaller niche set of consumers who have a bigger problem, but where that can evolve into something that's more universally applicable once you get into more of that median crowd. Where have you seen that in investments that you've been involved with over the years where it's neat to say, and I think everybody wants to believe that, oh, I'll go somewhere where there's a small market now, but where people really want to solve some problem. But I'm sure you've actually experienced this stuff firsthand. So I'm curious what sort of felt like a toy to you and then turned out actually to be massive. Sure. So I was fortunate to be involved with the the Hotel Tonight guys early on, and their initial product was live in three cities. It was New York, San Francisco, and LA. It was only available day of, and it was probably across a set of two dozen properties. And the early customer, a lot of it was people who were commuting into New York who needed a place to crash on a frequent basis because they just didn't want to deal with the commute going back home. So that might be less of an applicable problem today, but it was a much narrower set of consumers where for a lot of other people, the idea of 1 p.m. not knowing where you're going to sleep that night would have just felt naturally uncomfortable. <laughs> and that's where the product evolved to. It got to the point where you could book three months out, you could book you know, multiple nights, you could book across properties that Hotel Tonight had exclusive rates, as well as really any property that was available on Expedia. And so it evolved into something that really just looked like an easier mobile booking experience. But in those early days, it never would have risen above the noise if it didn't have a value to a niche set of audience. Right. It's this interesting idea that you can appeal to a niche set of consumers and thus aggregate their demand, where once you have their loyalty for some specific narrow use case they have, you later can offer them a much broader set of things because they already are conditioned to use your thing as channel for solving their problem. Yeah, and especially in marketplace-type businesses, there's always this push-pull between supply and demand. And so you might need that niche set of consumers in order to get the right supply online. But then once you get that supply online, you can build a more durable alternative that appeals to a wider set of folks. Well, that's a good place to dive in. You mentioned the average consumer downloads zero new apps per month. And I want to flash back to the 2010 era where people were discovering all kinds of new apps. This is when I released a to-do list app on the App Store, and that was novel enough to get millions of downloads. Facebook ads were really cheap. Getting featured by Apple, that was like company making. Still is. It's just harder to get these days. (laughs) Right, right. And I want to talk a little bit about cycles, but not about macroeconomic cycles, because I think everybody's talking about the, you know, oh, we're going into this recession and layoffs and blah, blah, blah. Maybe we'll get to that. But I want to talk about consumer cycles around new technology waves. I'm curious where you think we are right now in that and if that impacts where you're excited about investing versus not. Yeah, definitely. In some ways, I think investors almost over-rotate trying to find the next cycle just because this last wave of cycles was so powerful. When you think about mobile, when you think about the movement to the cloud, And so you have a lot of these, I would almost say like false starts, where people were really excited about VR that sort of evolved a little bit. But remember like how excited everyone was about Google Glass? And then the first time you were hanging out with someone that was wearing it, it just felt weird. And so, you know, we're trying to map both what people need with a sense of taste and social norms to understand what people are actually going to adopt. And a lot of times these new cycles that are talked about take things like a metaverse they're less pulled from the consumer. 
at least metaverse in the way that Facebook is sort of describing it, they're less pulled from the consumer and more pushed down by folks in the ecosystem where it benefits them. And so I think a lot of the issues in consumer vesting to get to the point you made earlier where people are feeling a little bit lost is because they're looking for that next cycle. And there's been a lot of false positives in what that next cycle is. And so for me, when I don't know what that next platform is, that's like so exciting and that we're going to just, everything's going to be reinvented. I go back to our North Star as a firm, which is this people component. And so we did this consumer research project, which we're going to share some of the results later this year. But there were like three big themes that came out of that. And that was that people were looking for purpose, direction, and resilience. They're actually feeling pretty good about themselves individually, but just feeling like horribly about the rest of the world. And so an example would be like spirituality. Like I think a lot of people in my life live a relatively secular life, but there is this draw, especially from even younger demographics, for a desire for a greater level of spirituality. And that was something that was like news to us. We wouldn't have come up with that on our own. But once we saw that trend, we wanted to go and unpeel it a little bit more. On the inverse, we spend a lot of time in and around sustainability. It feels incredibly important given everything going on in the world. But when we started looking at purchase data, where people were talking about what they wanted to do versus what they were actually doing, a lot of people hadn't really changed their behaviors that much to live a more sustainable life. When we don't see kind of clear cycles or clear shifts, we go back to these North Star traits and realize that even the movement to mobile is something that a lot of industries haven't done yet, right? So I still have a checkbook. And when I'm looking for investment themes, I'm like, where am I still writing checks, right? Like, where am I booking appointments on iMessage instead of an app? And we talk a lot about people. I think other folks naturally gravitate to like, oh, that must be a consumer solution. But people are adopting products in the enterprise. They're adopting products for their own small businesses. And so a big theme that we've talked about a fair amount is the next generation of Main Street America, And how can that be more digitized in a way where these merchants are competing with folks like Amazon and Walmart, but there's an inherent desire of consumers to shop locally? And so what technologies can enable those businesses in a way that still hasn't made it there? So there's this like concept of the mobile cycle. While we feel like it's all problems are said and done sometimes living in a place like San Francisco there still is a whole wave of people where they're still living a very analog life and they could benefit from some of these more digital solutions. With a theme like this, like spirituality, community, belonging, how do you, especially at the early stage, then go prosecute it when you're looking for investments? You like put a billboard up and, hey, founders, here comes to like, obviously not. Yeah, the uh, billboards on 101 are, are, the prices are coming down these days. So maybe we'll be able to get there at some point. That's the contrarian move is like actually go yeah, buy exactly. those billboards right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What, so what do you guys do to, to prosecute? Maybe you could talk about early and growth, but particularly at early, I'm curious. Well, uh, again, one of the benefits of being one of the few firms that is like really standing tall around these themes and around the consumer, the right founders know that they can come talk to us and we might not invest in their business but we're going to have an informed conversation at a minimum. And so the the benefit of our job is that we don't have to have all the answers. We just need to know what we're looking for. And then it's up to people much smarter than us who are starting new businesses to come in talk about their passion, talk about the problems they're trying to solve, who they're serving. And a lot of times that's one of the most exciting parts of the job is you never know what the day is going to hold, who you're going to meet and how you're going to be inspired. And so we don't, 
try to have all the answers. We do a fair amount of writing. We have a newsletter, if I could pimp it out a little bit, but it's called the CQ. We have something called uh, Perspectives on our website. What's the CQ stand for? Uh, It stands for the Consumer Quotient, which Uh is a very elaborate way of talking about how people use both EQ and IQ to make decisions because we really want to play into that emotional component. And it doesn't matter whether people are making a decision for their personal lives or their business lives. There's always an emotional component that makes people do something that they didn't do yesterday. And so we really want to drive into that component because you know, your stereotypical venture capital firm, it's a bunch of disconnected guys sitting around a table you know, eating muffins or whatever the thing is pontificating about what's interesting. And that doesn't always get into the emotional reason why why people do things. So that's how we came up with the CQ and, and our beautiful branding. Now, the piece around consumers, we leverage third-party data tools. We leverage survey tools. We do our own primary research. Unless we're very serious about a particular company, we're not doing, we're not typically doing user interviews at that micro of a level. That's something that being, you know, remote and leveraging all digital tools that are available to us is much better then kind of like walking down the street, handing out flyers, asking people what's going on in their lives. Right. Well, one question that I always like to ask people is, and you may not want to share this if you're like, that's my secret sauce, but I don't think you're that kind of person. If you were talking to a version of yourself 10 or 20 years younger who wanted to become you, but more quickly, how would you save them time? How would you tell them, hey, most people don't realize that my job is actually this, but it's mostly this. So you should go focus on this more. Sure. I think one of the hard things, at least for me early on, was getting into venture. There was this general concept that like people in venture don't do a lot for their companies. (laughs) I lived through being at a few startups. I didn't really see our board doing much of anything. And so when I got involved, I wanted to be able to measure my impact at those companies because then I could look myself in the mirror and be like, I'm not the stereotypical you know, person in venture who who doesn't really contribute a whole lot. What it took me a while to learn is that any sort of direct interaction that I have is really a flawed approach. It's my job to be asking the right questions. It's my job to be putting the right people in the room to be answering those questions and then to get out of the way. But you mean directly impacting like the product or the go-to-market, like a direct impact on the business. Exactly. Yeah. It would be like, hey, let me go crunch your marketing numbers to figure out which channels are not being properly exploited. Let me go grab another developer friend of mine and we'll hack away your site (laughs) over the weekend. Like that was something that gave me confidence is maybe the right way of saying it. But I felt good about those direct contributions when it was exactly the wrong thing to be doing because it wasn't helping that team become self-sufficient and not needing my involvement. And so I ran into some issues early on, which caused a bit of headache because I was getting kind of too involved operationally because I thought that was like me being an overachiever as opposed to me being a meddler. And so I'm now much happier with my role on the sidelines. There's a understanding that I have that people need to go through challenges, they need to learn on their own. I'm not going to necessarily influence that entirely. I'm really there to make sure that they're thinking about the problems they have from every different angle and that they're getting put in touch with the right people who have been through those problems themselves and who might have suggestions for how to solve it. And so it's like this recognition of where my role is in the equation and how I can help these people be most successful which largely means that I'm not the hero and it's not my name in lights and that's okay. 
Do you think that's something you could have understood 15 years ago? Or do you think that you needed to go through that in order to understand it? Did you have to make your own mistakes? I think I needed to go through it. And I think I needed to go through not just the process of it, but seeing what happened to the teams where I was too involved and that it just wasn't productive, right? That they would have been better spending an extra couple hundred grand doing something on their own or having it take twice as long, but where I wasn't directly trying to do anything because that was ultimately in the best interest of them becoming self-sufficient and them owning the decisions they were making and owning the results. So I think I had to learn that independently, but it would have been helpful if someone told me it as well. <laughs> I, might have, I might have picked up on it a little bit more quickly that way. Riffing on that, today in sort of the modern consumer companies, what do you think are the like core most important disciplines that companies develop you know, obviously in-house, but what are like the things that like when you're looking at teams today, you're like, we need to either have on the team already or build into world-class talent in XYZ disciplines? I think your your standard answers will probably be something to the extent of like having a marketing function, which is really strong at understanding different pockets of acquiring new customers to not be overly reliant on paid media. So folks who understand how to build community folks who understand how to leverage partnerships, different organic channels, that is becoming increasingly important for businesses to control their own destiny. The next area is really around product and engineering from the standpoint of how can you leverage existing tools that are out there to deliver an experience more quickly. A lot of companies we bump into, they might have an amazing insight, but it just takes a long time for them to get from point A to point B. And so that sort of speed is incredibly important. So beyond those two, the other one that I think is becoming increasingly important as cash is less available is really this understanding of your margin profile and understanding of the underlying cash flow of the business. A lot of companies have put together these beautiful solutions that have NPS scores that are in the high 80s, which is kind of almost like ridiculously good, but they're giving away too much for what they're ultimately charging, which leads to poor gross margin. They're not as thoughtful about the cash flow of the business. So they have a negative cash flow, which the faster you grow, the more money you inherently need. And so expertise in understanding this margin structure, expertise in understanding pricing, these are areas that as capital becomes more scarce are increasingly important. And there's got to be a willingness to have some of your customers ultimately say no because of price. If you haven't fully pushed that threshold, then you're giving something away too readily available. And that's going to come back and bite you in terms of the customer service costs of dealing with a wider audience versus a narrow audience that's ultimately paying you more. You know, if I'm giving away a dollar for 90 cents, there's an infinite amount of product market fit for that. Yeah, that's so funny. Like if if NPS for something is too high, you almost get a little suspicious. You're like, all right, how sustainable is this? Right. If your NPS is above that of like an iPhone, that's been crafted and engineered over you know a decade plus of experience and has reached real scale and becomes a daily component of people's lives, then you might be offering too much for what you're for what you're charging. There's this like fear that founders have, which is understandable, but you need to be willing to 
fire or let go some of your customers that are not ultimately profitable because it's not the grow at all cost mode anymore. It's about building sustainable growth. And if someone is only showing up because you're giving away, you know, the dollar for 90 cents, they're not ultimately the customer that you want. Yeah. I also want to drill in on this cash flow cycle thing because it's not something that I totally grasped until the last couple of years where I always figured, well, how important are payment terms really? I mean, you'll get paid eventually. So who cares when it's happening? And folks who've listened to our Amazon episode or have operated in a space that carries physical inventory or something will tell you it matters a lot. But I just watched a company, a friend of mine's company, went out of business because they were growing super fast. They had to make their next large inventory purchase as a CPG company. And they basically could not raise the capital to make that next inventory purchase, but they still had so much inventory on hand that they needed to sell through that they couldn't make the next inventory commitment until they sold through their existing inventory to get the cash to finance the purchase of the next one. And so there's this really, especially in physical products, as capital dries up and you must finance future growth in your business with cash flow, you have to get unbelievably creative or make sure that that you have really advantageous payment terms with your suppliers. And that tends to show up a lot more in these consumer companies that may have some kind of physical component. Yeah, I think this is especially relevant for companies that are operating in the physical world because you have this infrastructure buildup. You think about it, especially people that have local operations, there's a lot of cost up front that you need to think about before you even get into, into revenue. And even if you have great terms with the supplier, um, that's ultimately leverage that they have over you that they can renegotiate. And so companies that have a negative cash flow cycle need to think about how you can shrink that down as quickly as possible. And, and weeks matter in this regard, because the faster that you're growing, the more negative your cycle is. And the inverse, we have companies where people are paying for a product a year in advance, and then the product gets delivered throughout that year. A company called Sunday in the lawn care space operates that way. And so that ends up being a really nice positive cash flow cycle for them to be able to get cash in February, March, April, when people are signing up and to deliver the product throughout the year. And so I always remember there's this company called Jet Setter, which was part of oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Guilt back in the day. Yeah. And it was this amazing travel product. And uh, Drew, who was the CEO there, was able to get it to $100 million. Drew has been on Acquired. Oh, no way. Okay. Yep. Yeah, way back in but the like day. But like first year, like seven years ago. Yeah. And so he uh, it was always really impressive. They, they got people to effectively pay for the trips up front. And then they would pay the supplier when people actually went on those trips. And that enabled them to get to $100 million off of only spending a million dollars along the way. And so the faster you're growing, the better that positive cash flow cycle can help you. But the inverse is the faster you're growing, the more a negative cash flow cycle can hamper you. And so we're looking for founders. It depends on the business you're operating in. But the more that you're touching physical goods, the more you really need to understand the cash flow of what's going on in your operations. Cash flow, margins, operating these physical goods companies, there's less margin of safety. You can't YOLO the, the running of the business. You have to thread needle after needle after needle and make sure it all flows together nicely. Yeah, and that's why a lot of them venture is not the right financing instrument for what they're trying to build. You can build a very profitable, durable business growing 30, 40, 50% a year that might be lucrative for the founders it might be a great solution for the consumers, but it doesn't fit 
the ultimate goals of venture firms, which is to have things growing 100% plus per year that can ultimately be worth billions of dollars. And so if you look at some of the disconnect that's happened in the physical product world, it's just been not that these are bad businesses. It's been that the financing strategy around them has set them up for inachievable objectives. And so we're getting back to a point now where that misalignment is getting fixed in a way where people are less likely to give really kind of expensive venture dollars with lots of strings. But sometimes founders think that that's an indictment on their business. It's not. It's just the wrong instrument for how to grow to the next phase. But usually the answer for those companies is to focus on angels and to figure out how to get to be profitable and in control of your own destiny on smaller dollars, because that's what companies did you know, for decades before. And so we as a firm haven't done as many physical product companies in the last fund cycle. I would say it was maybe five out of two dozen or 27 or something along those lines, because the intersection of our, our fund size today, some of the headwinds that are facing those businesses hasn't lined up as well as it did in the earlier days of Forerunner, where we had smaller funds, so you could optimize for different sorts of outcomes. And you also had a much better tailwind around digital marketing, which today has gotten a lot more complicated. Yeah. All right. So speaking of digital marketing, so this is a question I've been wanting to ask you. What are the list of things where I can walk into your office and pitch you? And if I say them as a part of the pitch, you'll sort of instantly trend south of a five on the investment and, and be not excited about it. And I'll throw out the first one, which I think is one that is likely one of these, which is we acquire the vast majority of our customers on Facebook ads. I assume that is a near instant pass as if there's no real line of sight to how I get the majority up to organic referrals. Well, the big question there becomes more, how are they thinking about the next chapter of their business? So a lot of companies we talk to at the seed series A stage, the founder is the one who's driving the marketing budget. And so the expectation is not that they're completely sophisticated about every possible channel, and they probably don't have budget to go more broadly. So we do meet a lot of people where unfortunately the reality is most of the dollars spent are in social channels. The real question is whether they think that that's going to be the next phase of growth as well. They think that they can continue to spend the same CPA for 5x the budget. And that usually doesn't play out. As you increase your budget, you lose some of the low-hanging fruit pools of, of customers, and it's going to get more expensive. The folks who come to us and say, hey, look, we wanted to get in market quickly. We wanted to test this by going through social media because we felt like we had the right audiences we could target. That's helped us get to our first 1,000 customers. But when we think about the next 10,000, we're going to evolve our strategy in these ways. That's the level of thought we're looking for. And then we're going to evaluate whether those strategies are right or not. But the idea that they've been thinking about it and that they understand that that next chapter might be different from the last one is really all we can expect when we're talking with relatively early stage companies. And when is it credible versus when is it sort of, eh, I just don't believe you when someone's saying, oh, well, so far it's been 100% social ads, but you know, in the future it's not going to be. Like, wh What causes you to believe that versus not? Yeah, and this is where it's really not just about that one dimension. So some of this has to do with how inherently interested are we in the category that they're ultimately operating in? Do we have a belief that other channels will work beyond that one? 
So that's a big question. Number two is who is the team behind this? Are these people that have an expertise and a unique understanding of who that customer is? Those two things give credibility to the next chapter story, whereas someone else who's operating in a category that we've seen just be like full of carnage and they don't have a particular background, they haven't learned from other companies in the space. That's one of the immediate red flags you asked earlier is when someone doesn't know why a previous company that attacked the same problem space either worked or didn't work. That happens all the time. And if I know more about your business, not even operating in it than you do, that's really scary when we're not supposed to be the experts in any given category. You guys would be shocked at how many people you'll be like, what about this company? It's some business that raised like $100 million in the exact same category and they don't even know about it. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that, okay, so maybe that's another good one. One would be me waltzing and saying, yep, 100% of our spend is on paid channels right now, but I have really no credible reason why you would believe that any of that is ever going to shift away based on the team or based on our experience. A second one would be having no idea who else is in the space, attacking the same customers, solving the same problem. I'm curious what other ones, and maybe specifically to consumer investing, are things where you look at some company or some team and you're like, ugh, shoot. That is, that is not a good sign. Yeah, another one that we, we see frequently is people who don't understand the power of a competitor's existing distribution. So in the marketplace space, you'll see a lot of people who will show up and they'll be like, look how crappy this Craigslist alternative is. And it's like, okay, that's great. But people have been using that for the past 20 years. And a lot of them don't think it's broken. And they don't really care that the UI isn't as clean as yours. And so you'll see companies where they have a great strategy for how they go from 1 million users to 10 million users, but they have no idea how to get their first 100. They have no idea how to get their first 1,000. And they think that it's gonna be some beautiful UI or design trick that's gonna get them there, as opposed to understanding these inherent audiences and understanding the fact that like not everyone uses a product because it's a beautiful experience. They use it because it works and it gets the job done for them. Yeah. In talking about some of this distribution stuff and acquisition stuff, there's a company that's in both of our portfolios, Arrived Homes, and they had sort of the opposite approach where all of their initial signups were organic word of mouth, and they only later, after demonstrating early product market fit, got into the paid game. And I'm curious, if someone's really trying to sort of get started on an idea, would you recommend using paid channels first and then having a credible strategy to move to a blend of organic? Or should they try the arrived strategy and do it sort of on hard mode and try without paid to really validate what the true cost of acquisition is? When we're talking to founders, we're really looking for as much data as we can get, recognizing that it's an imperfect picture. So if a company has been operating, as you said, in hard mode, where they've been doing everything organically and they've been seeing success, on one hand, that's great because it shows that there is an inherent desire. On the other hand, that can be more challenging to evaluate it because you don't have any understanding of whether paid channels or more deliberate marketing channels will work or how hard it will be to light those up. And so sometimes, as much as people hate on paid marketing, it is a blunt tool that if it's working very well, It will probably continue to work to a deteriorating amount, but it's understandable in terms of how it's going to evolve versus if you've been entirely organic and now you need to start up the machine for doing something differently, 
that's effectively an unknown area that you're going into. And so there's more open questions. Right. You don't know for sure that you can drive scale, even though you have this sort of like unpredictable but cheap well that you're currently fishing in and you don't know how deep the well really can go. Yeah. And so with Arrive specifically, we thought the problems that they were solving, which was really about giving investors, regular retail investors, access to real estate investments that previously you could only really do if you were wealthy. Um, we thought that value prop would ring true and that there over time would be communities and pockets of people that they could attach themselves to that wouldn't rely on paid marketing. But that was a belief based on existing research we had done in the category and not something that we maybe would have been as comfortable going after if we didn't already feel like we had a read on what people wanted to do. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, I want to bounce around to some different areas of consumer investing. And one that was all the rage five, six, seven years ago was this direct-to-consumer movement. We saw it with Warby Parker early. We saw it with Allbirds. It feels like it was kind of uh, kick-started originally by Dollar Shave Club. And then we quickly got to this saturation point where there were three D2C brands in every category, and then people moved into highly unprofitable categories that were perhaps low revenue, thin margin, two-year payback periods. Then we all got subscription fatigue. I'm describing this in a very low-resolution way, but I'm curious, since you spend a lot of time thinking about this, where are we in the direct-to-consumer space right now? Sure. I think when you're speaking specifically to companies that are offering a physical product, we're in this period right now where there is a return to reality. We talked earlier about cash flow cycles. We talked earlier about some of the challenges of scaling physical product at venture scale, and it's really difficult. It's increasingly difficult when these marketing channels that a lot of these companies relied on have gotten harder and harder to grow at a rapid rate. Now, some of that's actually been getting better over the past couple months, but with changes around the Apple platform, that got to be real difficult for you know a good 18-month period. And so with that, we're seeing some companies go away. The ones that don't have a strong enough value proposition to the end consumer, some of those are just not going to survive. And, and that's unfortunate, but that, that happens. Some of them are turning into good quality cash flow businesses, but ones where there's a real question about the strategic value around those companies. Is there an inherent moat? Should they be valued at 10 times revenue? Or is this really a 8 to 12 times EBITDA? profile, which is a very different picture of, of how companies can be valued. And so then some of them are able to capture culture in a way where they become part of everyday conversation, they become part of the fabric of how people think about a product category, and they start out in a narrow set, and then they're able to evolve that more broadly. And so we're still interested in the category, but we want to be mindful that a lot of businesses don't fit the current environment. They don't fit what people need, and they maybe don't fit our fund model today. And again, that is okay, but like we are looking for businesses where we can have it make a dent in a billion-dollar fund, which is a very different objective than Forerunner 1, which is a $40 million fund. Yeah. What do you think those are in this macroeconomic cycle, if we had to like shift in a little bit closer? And, and for point of comparison out of the 2008 crisis saw the rise of Airbnb where it was attractive to me to people to make a little bit more money to help put toward their their mortgage or their rent. I'm curious what will be the the things that 
drive the countercyclical companies that come out of this macro? Sure, a lot. A lot of the businesses that were were really successful coming out of that last recession were ways for people to leverage their existing assets in a creative and new way, right? So the ability to leverage the car that you already own to be able to go drive, the ability to get a better car than you could maybe afford otherwise by driving on the side. You mentioned Airbnb earlier. There was excess assets and excess items before. We're seeing a lot of businesses these days that are a little bit more focused on leveraging people's excess time. So how can you build a business by taking advantage of the fact that people have inherent social reach they have curiosities and existing interests, and they have more availability of time that they can contribute in way, one way, shape, or form. And some of these have been dubbed this broader creator economy, which I think in some ways is the wrong way to think about it, because a lot of folks want to post on social media for all the you know inherent personal reasons, not because they're trying to build businesses. So you really need to be thoughtful about, hey, who actually is willing to put the work in to do this in a way that's going to create economic value for them and the people in the underlying marketplace. And so we have seen this element of time. We've also seen a lot of marketplaces, I think, for the last decade, really be focused on supply-side innovation. We have a whole piece talking about that focus on the supply side. But I think there's also a shift to businesses that have more of a demand-side mode. And what I mean by that is it's become to the point where there's just so many alternatives for you to be able to get what you want, right? You think about, you know, secondhand clothing. There's like five or six relevant sites there. When you think about vacation rentals, you need to go on Airbnb, you need to figure out like which place is gonna make you do all the laundry and mow the lawn yourself versus which place is actually gonna feel like a relaxing vacation. It's a lot of factors and it's become a lot more difficult for the end consumer to be able to understand the trade-off of one alternative versus another. And so we're seeing, think about this almost like a concierge service, but we're seeing companies come into play, which are trying to make that easier on the people willing to spend their money in these marketplaces by not having them have to come and figure everything out on their own. Hmm. On this topic of quote unquote creators and building businesses versus posting social media, I'm curious what what your guys' thoughts are on YouTube. Because I think YouTube and, and creators on YouTube, to me, YouTube is this really interesting platform where they've, for people who choose to, they've removed the burden of building a business. Like if you can build a following on YouTube, you just click a button and turn on monetization and they handle the business for you. <laughs> Have you guys made any investments in creators on YouTube, the YouTube platform, or, or how do you think about it for your companies? We haven't made any investments in that category. It's it's hard to think about as a third party operating specifically within Google's you know, kind of four-walled environments and what sort of moats you can build there. But going back to the point earlier around creative marketing channels, YouTube is a fascinating place for early stage companies to be able to play because the creators have a lot of influence over their audience they have a fair amount of reach and the tools that Google puts out are really pretty good. And so when we meet with the company where they say, hey, we've done these things on Facebook, but more importantly, we're seeing early signs of success leveraging YouTube. That's an exciting thing for us to hear because that feels like you can probably 10X the budget there and not quite hit the diminishing returns that you would in other social channels. So we've been more, I would say, consumers of those uh, tools as opposed to investing in the creators themselves. And it is a massive ecosystem, especially when you skew to, to younger folks. 
they spend all their time on YouTube, right? And so when we think about where over the next decade is there going to be more and more attention, YouTube is definitely one of those channels that it feels like there's more to be done in. I just find it fascinating, like like Mr. Beast, you know, like he's now building a business outside of YouTube, you know, in a big way. But like before that, you know, for years, he had a great business without having to do anything typically associated with a business. It was just aggregate views and YouTube took care of the monetization. Yeah. And Mr. B specifically is an interesting one because he's, he's been very sophisticated about how he's gone about these different channels and there's been third-party investors that have gotten involved along the way. And so we've, we've had conversations about this, but he's also a unique entity that sometimes investors will extrapolate what works for, for him. And there's really only like a dozen or so people that maybe fit in that bucket. And then it tails off pretty quickly. It, it almost reminds me of, we used to look at a lot of these like in-game advertising businesses that were like, oh, there's all these video games, they have all this attention, so we're going to sell items within the games. And the example would always be like, we're going to sell a Gatorade or something like that, that will help your, you know, your player, your character, whatever it is, do better. But then the examples fell off a cliff pretty quickly <laughs> once you got beyond a few of these like Gatorade or Red Bull or, you know, Cliff Bar or whatever it is. And so when you think about the examples of the YouTube businesses, while the Mr. Beast example is like intellectually really interesting, it's the question of how does it work for the creator with 100,000 followers, you know, where they're putting time in, they're making some money at it, but it's not quite, you know, their life's mission at this point. That kind of healthy middle ground is ultimately something that is like easier for us to think about how it can be a scalable, durable business as opposed to more talent-led businesses where you're really reliant on that person's personal brand for the future of the company. And that can ultimately make it more difficult for you to sell that business down the road. Right. Yeah, like acquired, not a saleable asset. Without David and I, it's not particularly useful. <laughs> exactly. Comes down to the talent, right? Yeah. As you look at different channels or different creator mediums, which one has the healthiest fat torso. Like I could imagine trying to contrast TikTok creators, podcasters, YouTubers. And the example I'll, I'll give from when we started Glow was that there actually were not as many sort of like healthy fat torso podcasters as I would have thought. That sort of like podcasters who had reached scale, but weren't quite Joe Rogan. You know, it seemed like there were like a handful of the Rogan types and then a whole bunch that nobody listened to. And you know, maybe 1% of all podcasts fell into what I would consider like a healthy torso. Have you given any thought to like what that looks like across mediums? Yeah, we, we have. There still is a, a big opportunity for a next generation affiliate platform. If you think about the way that uh, affiliate operates today, it's largely like use our code. You got to remember the code. You got to enter it at checkout. Then they get paid back. And so we invested in a company called Canal, which really enables anyone to become a third-party seller. And whether that's creating their own storefront or whether that's being an existing brand and be able to put other people's products on your site, we think there's an opportunity for having affiliate be less of sort of a, you know, back alley kind of conversation and more of a, you know, front of the office. Like this is a great way for people not to be advertisers, but to actually be sellers of your product. But also things like podcasts, I was involved early on with a company called Anchor, and they were experimenting with the longer tail podcast creators and different monetization strategies. 
And what was really interesting that we saw, this was all right before the company got bought by Spotify, so it didn't fully get played out as, as much as I would have hoped, but that folks that had a podcast that might only have like 100 listeners, it's like their mom, it's their girlfriend, it's their dog, you know, like there's not a lot of people that are ultimately listening. The conversion rates on the ads that they put out were astronomical, right? And so if you were able to get to some of those longer tail creators people that had an audience and that audience knew them in the real world, when they talked about something, people listened. And so then it was really just a question of how can you stitch this together in a programmatic way? So you're not going and doing one-off ad deals with each one of these individuals, but can you bring the programmatic advertising read to a broader scale, which I think would have been really interesting and would have played out. Obviously, like it went in a different direction once once the team joined joined Spotify. But I think some of that comes back to some of these tools that the platforms are able to put out that make it easier for the longer tail to be able to do some of the practices that historically were only done by the head end. But those are ultimately in control of the platform creators, not third parties that are operating on those platforms. Right, right. And it makes sense. I, I like your observation about the higher affinity and higher conversion rate. If you could aggregate every podcast that had 100 super, super high affinity listeners, theoretically, you should have like the most high efficacy advertising platform on the planet because they're, you know, everybody is putting their own little unique spin on it and talking about why they endorse particular products. But obviously, building that machine is so difficult and time intensive and, and resource intensive in practice. Yeah, I mean, that's where, again, if, if you have the right targeting, you understand what people are talking about, and you make it easy for people to interact. Anyone who has like a hobbyist podcast, the idea to them of being able to do an endorsement read is kind of exciting because that's what, you know, big guys like yourselves do. And so for them, as they're kind of growing up and developing their own audience, we actually found that people were willing to do it for free just because it, it made it look like they had made it. <laughs> oh, we definitely thought that way in the early days of Acquired. We were like, yeah, for yeah sure. are there brands that like it actually benefits us to? Yeah, exactly. And so if you're you're talking about eight sleep or you're talking about, you know, ritual vitamins or whatever it is, there's something there that people can get behind and can get excited about. And if you have a personal connection with that individual, it's more likely to convert on a percentage basis. It's just the absolute question. You brought up mattresses, so we're going to talk mattresses because I think there's almost no pure way to have a consumer products conversation than mattresses. So let's let's talk about three companies and dissect these. And I don't know if you're an investor in any of them, but you've got Eight Sleep, you've got Casper, you've got Purple. Purple and Casper, same era, one VC-backed Casper, one of the worst IPOs of the, the sort of crazy run-up, one Purple... I think got to a reasonably similar scale, fully bootstrapped with a much better margin profile. Those two companies, Lisa, a lot of those companies, there's 40 other companies selling effectively the same product out of the same warehouses in China, the very same manufacturers, but you know, built totally different brands around them. I would have guessed three, four years ago, after all of this, I would have said, direct-to-consumer mattresses, probably not an investable category. And yet... Eight Sleep comes on the scene, and we seem to have a completely new wave of direct-to-consumer mattresses. What do you make of all that? Sure. So I think, first of all, it was this evolution of being able to 
sell a product that historically you had to go through a pretty poor sales experience. I don't know if you guys have been to any of the, like the in-person mattress stores recently. Oh, yeah. But it's just like, you got to take a shower when you, when you leave <laughs> the, 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 the organization. And so having like this beautiful brand, having these like very liberal return policies, having better pricing, that helped these companies get going. And because you were selling effectively foam and you had an $800 average purchase price, you could spend a fair amount of money on your CAC and still get the money back pretty quickly. So the unit economics looked pretty good. But what happened is along the way, there was no inherent moat and the the brand component wasn't strong enough for you know one product versus another. It was harder to differentiate the actual like features of one versus another. And so the category commoditized. And those companies that were trying to continue to hit venture returns or even harder, public market returns ultimately fell under the weight of what those expectations were. Whereas I'm, I'm less familiar with Purple, but I do know the story with like the Tough to Deedle guys. They embraced Amazon in a way that a lot of other companies didn't. They had a different cost structure that ensued that they were thinking about profitability at all times. And so a lot of companies that were venture funded started out being profitable. And then every year that they grew, the economics got worse and worse and worse. And that should be a red flag that maybe this category is just not right for venture funding in its current format. And so just when everyone got like, you know, as far away from mattresses as they could, you have Eight Sleep come along. And that's a product that gets to the point where for people, like one of the best questions we talked about NPS earlier is less about like, hey, would you tell your friends about this product? It's like, hey, if I took this product away from you, how disappointed would you be? And if you talk to eight sleep customers, they'll tell you that they can't sleep without it, right? And so they ultimately have this hook where people feel like the product is very differentiated and they're willing to pay a, a heavy premium in order to get access to that brand. And so the question there will be, look, does this get commoditized like other companies in the category have? It's got a better moat around it because of the sensors, because of the cooling technology. And they're now trying to build a subscription business on top of that, that will leverage data and be personalized. It's all the things that like venture people love to hear, but it's yet to be proven out whether that is, that is an inherent moat, but like kudos to that team for sitting there and thinking about a commoditized category and then coming back with something that the end consumer ultimately felt was very differentiated and hasn't been as easy to replicate from some of the competitors in the category. So like over the last 20 years, the time for 10 brands to come copy you if you do something innovative and don't own your own supply chain has shrunk dramatically. Like if you come out with this cool new foam mattress and there's some supplier you're working with in another country, there's probably going to be like 10 other companies that fast follow you. And so this, this sort of moat that you have by being first in building these consumer brands seems to be shrinking to me. Other good examples are like, AirPods. Apple comes out with it. Then, you know, you see very credible and and sometimes even better competitors in, in Bose and Microsoft has a pair of these. But now there's like $10 pseudo AirPods at the CVS checkout with no brand on them at all. When someone has like a breakthrough new consumer concept, how do you sort of decide if you think that that will have staying power or if there'll be a zillion CVS checkout copies? I think the first assumption is that anything that is interesting will have a zillion copies. 
The question is just whether those copies resonate with consumers in the same way. So you talk about all the Apple AirPod copies, but meanwhile, AirPods alone as a revenue business is one of the top companies in the entire world. And so people are still paying the $200 or $250, depending on the model, for that premium experience of being able to just kind of like put it on your phone and see it pop up and the charging and the way that that ecosystem works together, as opposed to just a third-party Bluetooth product. And so we put, I would say, very little faith in first-mover advantage. If you look at a lot of the companies that have become $100 billion businesses, the Googles, Facebooks, you know, even something like an Uber, those were not the first movers in that category, but they had a unique insight. And so that's that's the area that we want to play in when we think about the categories of companies that we want to be building. And very rarely is the winner the first mover. Often they can ride on the coattails and do something different and more sustainable to the end, end user. So we're looking at moats. Sometimes there's a technical moat but frequently, you know, technology can be recreated because open source availability and existing tools are getting that much better. Sometimes it's a distribution moat where you have access to consumers in a you know, lower cost or more effective way. Sometimes it's a brand moat, right, where people resonate with your product. They want to be customers. And a lot of times people think about that solely in the consumer world. But when you think about something like a Slack or something like a Figma, these are software products, but ultimately where by being a user of those products, it said something about the individual in a way that was harder for a company like Adobe to come along and recreate because it became less about the individual features and more about what that community and what that product said about you. And so when we think about those different moats, again, a lot of times they resonate in consumer spaces, but increasingly as people are making decisions around the tools they're using in their day-to-day -day job, they're using the same frameworks they leverage for their own kind of personal dollars with their business dollars as well. And that's becoming a moat even in the enterprise as well. Hmm. Okay, bear with me on this segue. Let's see if I can accomplish it. Speaking of people's personal dollars, I think we should talk about crypto. <laughs> okay, we'll segue. <laughs> I don't know about that one, Ben. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. So you and I had a conversation three or four months ago. We we're talking Web three. We were talking metaverse stuff. And, and and your take was basically, I think there is almost nothing of value in the crypto ecosystem right now for the end consumer. I'm curious if that's still where your head is at, and if you are excited about any Web three or crypto things, what are they? So I think the the most exciting thing about crypto is the fact that it's getting ripped apart right now. And so what that means is the folks that are left fighting the good fight are the ones that are really kind of there for the true principles. So one of the concerns I had six months ago looking at crypto is that people would talk this big game about how it was about democratizing access, how it was about bringing kind of power back to the people. And then you looked at it and it was worse than a Vegas nightclub in terms of like who actually had access to the real early dollars and the real keys to the kingdom. And so a lot of that felt a little bit like how I remember the web felt in like 2000, where it was a lot of kind of looky-loos and people that weren't really about the underlying technology or weren't really about the end customer, but were just showing up because like in San Francisco at the time, the streets were paved in gold, which felt very similar to like 
selling mortgages in Miami in 2008. And it's kind of crypto got that sort of CD flavor to it over the last year where there was a lot of hype. I remember you would have these funding announcements, which almost looked like tour posters about all the people involved. And it felt like the end user, the person that these solutions were ultimately supposed to benefit, was getting forgotten along the way for the goal of speculation. And so I think with some of the hype coming coming down a bit, the people that are building are going to be the ones that are in it for the long haul, and they might be more true to the principles of what it was originally supposed to be about in the first place. But I still think it's a high bar, right? You think about all the generations of technology companies that have come along. People talk about how you know Amazon was so innovative. Well, they were riding on top of existing credit rails. They were riding on top of things like FedEx. And so a lot of these Web3 solutions are really building everything from the ground up, which historically has been very hard. And so I still think some of the best Web3 plays will be companies that have already built products in Web2, who already have an audience, who already have a value proposition, and then are able to add that on top if there's an actual benefit. But in a lot of cases, you know, the benefit is harder to articulate, and there's a real environmental footprint in terms of just the energy it all consumes. And so I have been spending less time there because I think people have problems that are you know, solvable with existing technology stacks. And so those are easier to understand for how the solutions can be built. Yeah. I mean, there's a very credible argument to be made that once there's a lot of real consumer value and real economic activity happening on a blockchain in, in a decentralized manner, then you can have blockchain companies serving blockchain companies and that can make a lot of sense in the same way that you have billions of dollars or a multi-billion dollar ecosystem of people who are just serving the people who are merchants on Amazon. But first, there was a very tangible value of, wow, I can get something in my house in two days and I can punch my credit card into the internet and it's this miracle that it just arrives at my house. And so the question for crypto remains like, what is the miracle to the people who are not currently immersed in the crypto ecosystem for which this is much better than their alternative, where you can sort of bootstrap that ecosystem. And then on top of that, you can sort of have a variety of crypto native providers serving other crypto native providers. Yeah. And I think it's actually a lot harder from a product discovery perspective, because when you put economics into one of the clear incentives, it's hard to discern whether someone's doing something because they really love it and because it's better than their alternative or whether they're doing because they're trying to make money along alongside, right? So if I open up a new restaurant and I'm serving you know, the best burgers in town, it's very different if I'm just serving burgers and people have to pay me 10 bucks versus if I'm serving burgers and I'm giving people like 20 burger coins that may be worth $1,000 down the road. It's hard to tell <laughs> whether the product is actually like really good or not. And how so good is the I want to think yeah. about like, how good is the burger? That is a simple question, which is harder to answer. You think about some of the crypto games that are out there. People aren't playing them because they're more fun than the alternatives they have. They're playing because they believe they can make money and get rich off of it, right? Which kind of flies in the face of the original, the original objectives. And so I still think some of these companies where, you know, it's a, it's a clear value proposition to the end consumer, their product lives and works in the existing environment. And then, oh, by the way, you didn't even realize it, but part of the ownership of the assets was you know, built on the blockchain, or you didn't realize it, but your share of your marketplace earnings is actually structured as an NFT. And it's not like 
in the marketing materials that they're throwing in your face, but it's actually the better technical solution behind the scenes. And they maybe don't even tell you about it. Those are interesting companies to me because they're thinking about the end user and whether the benefit lives on its own, even if it's not branded as a crypto company, just because it's the right technical solution. Yeah, the the Solana folks who introduced us to Roniel Rumberg from Audius sort of opened my eyes to this, where Audius has 5 million users that are all getting the token. And you sort of don't realize that you have this like Audius hosted wallet that has the token in it. It just, it feels like it's just like a the same way that you'd be accruing like karma on Reddit, but actually they've abstracted away all the crypto stuff from you. So you just have this like experience where, oh, I can listen to music that I can't listen to anywhere else. That's cool. Oh, I seem to be accruing rewards for listening on this platform. That's cool. And I don't have to bust out my ledger to like <laughs> sign up for it. Yeah. I mean, the wallet, the connectivity, it, it makes it really hard for first time users. And so the question I would ask then is like, hey, is that something that's unique compared to Spotify or SoundCloud that they couldn't bolt on on later, right? And sometimes it's really hard. You have this innovator's dilemma to be able to do something differently. But then you look at someone like Starbucks that has this like wallet, which getting back to cash flows again, gives them like $2 billion of additional cash just because people are putting putting money down. If people got to the point where they're adopting crypto wallets, is it easier for them to evolve to that? Or is it easier for someone else who has like, coffee coin to be able to evolve to being Starbucks. Right. All right. I have to ask you about the metaverse. What is the most credible example that you have seen of something that you would consider a metaverse in consumer land today? I'm going to go out on the record and be like, the metaverse is already here, but it's this thing called iMessage. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this product before, but it's like this really cool thing. It's on my phone. It's on my computer. It's even on my watch. And I can like talk to anyone in the world, people I know, people I don't know. I can share photos, I can share videos, and it's like really cool. You know, my belief is that the connectivity promise of the metaverse is something that goes all the way back to like AOL Instant Messenger or like things like ICQ, which is really about like connecting people in their in their daily lives. And then everything that's put on top of that either falls into more of a gaming use case or like a fantasy use case, or it just adds additional friction along the way. I've had this belief for, I don't know, a decade that like, just because our phones aren't implanted in our body, it doesn't mean we're not already cyborgs. My phone is always within a foot of me and it's the way that I do everything. Like you drop me in a city and I don't have my phone. I'm just like screwed. I probably don't have my wallet with me. I don't, know where I am. I don't like I've already become so unbelievably connected to it. And I think the same can sort of be said for like, how would you define a metaverse? Well, it's a thing you spend all of your time in. And you let to your point, you communicate with these other people who you know, who you don't know, there's multimedia experiences. For the amount of time per day that my head is glued to that tiny little glass screen, like just because it's not a 3d environment, how is that not the metaverse? It's also hard to right. pull me out of it most of the time. <laughs> well, and it's also like, is it the best form factor for what you're trying to do, right? And so a lot of people think about the metaverse as this sort of immersive VR experience. And you know, frankly, I haven't done anything in VR recently, but when I have, it feels nauseating, right? Like, And I think it's gotten better, but I don't want to be interacting with people with something on my face all day. I remember back when 
all the TV manufacturers were really pushing, you know, 3D television because it was something the chips could already do. So why why not just market it as well? But like, I don't want to be sitting in the living room watching football with my friends and we're all wearing like 3D goggles. Like that's just socially awkward. And so I think the metaverse concept when you're when you're playing an immersive game where the benefits are there, that's great. But if I'm sitting watching like the new Top Gun with my friends, I don't want to be like looking at them as a purple rhinoceros and then my other friend is like, you know, dressed up like Freddie Mercury or whatever and like we're all sitting there watching this like weird small screen, you know, I want to be in front of a big screen TV, you know, watching that show and whether they're there physically with me in person or whether we're like chatting with each other about what's going on. I think that there's something inherently good with that kind of better personal dynamic. Now, what I think is maybe missing with some of these um, digital experiences is the concept of like time shifting, right? So you think about, we were talking about like iMessage before, but like, let's say I didn't watch the most recent Game of Thrones episode yet. If I'm on my text thread with my friends, they're already talking about it. And so I better like not pay attention. But if there is a way to synchronize that thread with the show itself, and whether that's with my friends or whether that's people more broadly, I think that's really cool, right? You're able to experience something collectively as a group. And so another example would be like the show, The Wire. Like I will admit I have yet to watch it, but I'm like oh, dying so to watch it with someone. But like everyone else I know consumed it like 10 years ago. But I'm sure there's <laughs> at least one other person out there that wants to watch it where like the first time someone gets killed or whatever, we could be like, no way. You know, we could we could do that collectively and have that shared experience so I think there's opportunities to take existing third-party media and not have people consume that synchronously with the broader world, but with that media in a way that's interesting. But this idea of everyone wearing VR goggles and like me looking at a virtual Zuck, you know, doing things, that's not the future I'm looking for. Like I want to help people solve like real problems in their real lives. And if we end up in a world which looks like Ready Player One, that I feel like we've kind of failed at our day job of making people's real lives better for them. I can't decide if I completely agree with you or if I think this is a failure of imagination. Like it's probably a little if, bit of both, right? Like <laughs> 50 years ago, I probably would have been like, if someone was like, do you want to go to an NFL game? I'd be like, sure. And I'd go and I'd be like, this is so much better than watching it at my house. But now, you know, I'm watching it on an 85 inch TV. It's in 4k. It's, Every single element of the experience from the game on the field to the production value to the timing is perfectly sequenced for my enjoyment on my couch where I'm iMessaging other people who are also watching that game on their couches. That experience in some ways is worse than the in-person experience, but in many ways is much better than the in-person experience. I, you know, I'm making whatever food I want. I can do whatever I want right up until the moment the game starts. I can, I don't know, this is, I'm very lame, but like fold laundry during, <laughs> during, yeah. like you can do stuff <laughs> around your cut house. that part out, but like right. we know about it, so. <laughs> but there's definitely a, uh, it's like a different way to experience the activity, but it makes me experience the activity 10 times more than I otherwise would. And that's sort of the like way that I'm trying to frame VR for myself is, you know, what is it, a thing that I do rarely, but if I could experience it in a super highly tuned, you know, decades of iteration VR way, would that actually be better than the way that I do it today in most cases? I think it's a good question. 
And it's something that you also got to think about all the negatives of physically going to that game in person, right? You're spending hundreds of dollars in tickets. You're spending $12 for a beer. You got to deal with traffic. You got to deal with parking. So there's also some cons to going in person. But I think it's hard for people sometimes to take a step back and be like, hey, the experience we have right now is pretty good. And one of the things that people don't think about with VR is that when you're able to control where the camera is looking, you are now like taking over editorial control of that experience. And that is a lot harder for individuals to do. You think about it from a game perspective, you think about it from a movie perspective, but let's take it from a sports perspective, right? It might be like this interesting novel approach to see the view from like where the ref is, for example, for like a five minute period of time to be but in the action. most of the time it's way worse. <laughs> but most of the time it's way worse. And so the fact that you have a professional editorial crew you know, working with probably like 30 different cameras around the field, picking the right shot at the right time for you to experience. And if there's a great play, you can look over to like someone sitting next to you, or again, you can be on on chat with someone. That's a really good experience. So the real question to me is only like, hey, can they make the social experience better through VR, where you're able to experience something with other people who aren't there physically in the room? And that's where I just don't know if the experience is better than like a big screen TV with 4K and, you know, chatting with people or heaven forbid, driving two miles and like going to watch the game together in someone's house. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's that's the right question. It's always the top of mind thing. But for me, it keeps coming back to great. The technology is really cool. Why is this like who is this better for and why? Which that that seems to be your overarching thesis across all things. I mean, the, the crypto Web three. I think, like the if I had one big takeaway from this episode, it's not that you know Brian's really into some particular technology wave because he thinks it's going to make for a trillion dollars of interesting companies. It's let's start with who is this better for and why on the consumer side, and then we can work backwards from there. Yeah, exactly. And and also there's this why now component for why are people going to change their behavior. And then also there's this why now component from a distribution perspective. We talked a fair amount about marketing, but are there new channels that particularly cater to what that product or service is? And so there's a lot of timing questions that pop in where maybe a previous version didn't work or didn't work as well as you would like it to, but the timing is different, right? So you think about a lot of the wave of like the web van companies that didn't really play out or the pets.com. But then you fast forward and and I think the jury's still out on Instacart, but like it is a durable business that a lot of people really enjoy using as a consumer. You think about, you know, things like Chewy, right? It's a sustainable public company. So sometimes it just takes a while to hit the right timing. And I look at companies like a Groupon that like were massive, but then didn't have the right product execution. And I would really love to have entrepreneurs revisit some of the more value-oriented plays because we are entering a period where people might have more time than money, where a lot of the other solutions historically the last couple of years have been sort of the inverse of that. And think about, is there a new format for some of the companies that were like really big 10 years ago, but didn't quite materialize in the way that they could? So revisiting some of these questions under the premise of today and what's going on now is an interesting way to think about things as opposed to always looking around the corner for something new and different. I love that. Well, that feels like a great, great place to leave it. Where can listeners get in touch with you? 
So I'm on Twitter. It's at Omal. So O-M-A-L. It's a great handle, by the way. Yeah. I took a little bit of effort to get into that one. <laughs> but had to pull a few strings. Originally, it was like Brian O'Malley 7. And it was just too long. So I was able to get that one figured out. Or email works as well. So it's bomalley at forerunnerventures.com. Awesome. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that uh, blog post you mentioned. I think it was something about focusing on the supply side. Yeah, we have a few of them that I would encourage people to check out. One is really thinking about supply side innovation. One is thinking about evolution in mainstream commerce. And uh, there's a few others that are there that I'll let people discover on their own. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. Thanks, Brian. Listeners, we'll see you next time.